So hello and welcome to the Unequal Exchange podcast. I'm Joseph and I'm joined by Peter. Peter, if you want to say hi. Hello. And today we're very excited to be interviewing Torkel Lawison. Torkel, if you want to say hi. Hi, hi. And Torkel is an author and activist, and we'll be discussing the second part of our conversation on unequal exchange, um, third world activism, and the conditions of uh, possibilities for world revolution in today's world. So, Peter, I don't know if you want to start off with the first question. Yeah. So last time uh, we touched on the question of unequal exchange in the modern world. And I was wondering if Torkel could talk a bit about um, the size of unequal exchange uh, in the contemporary period, whether it's been increasing or decreasing and uh, and what effects that has for our political, uh, how we see politics developing in the future and potential for progressive change. Yes, uh, I, I think this is a very interesting um, uh, development in the recent uh, decades. Um, you can say that 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 following uh, neoliberal uh, globalization, starting from uh, the end of the seventies or the mid of of the seventies, there was a huge uh, increase in unequal exchange due to the due to the new uh, international division of of the labor, uh, in which uh, the global south uh, starting producing uh, more industrial uh, product. There was a rise by hundreds of millions of, of new industrial uh, workers in uh, the global south. So the uh, unequal exchange was rapidly uh, increasing uh, in, in these uh, 20, 30 uh, years uh, or so. Um, also, of course, due to the de- uh, regulation of, uh, of uh, the world market and uh, uh, yeah, neoliberal globalization and, and, and also to the development of the, of the global production change. But uh, this uh, this uh, uh, globalization uh, process actually all also uh, changed uh, the world in in uh, many ways and and kind of backlash uh, to uh, imperialism, especially the development of China and the rise of of uh, China uh, changed that uh, uh, process. And from uh, in uh, around say yeah, two thousand, uh, the wage in, in China was around between one and two dollars uh, per hour, and at the moment it, it is uh, maybe three, four, five dollars uh, uh, per hour. So this is a, a big change in in wages in uh, China, which is the biggest contribution to unequal uh, exchange. And also, we have seen in the in the last decades, due to the changing strategy of imperialism, we have seen a uh, um, uh, uh, decline in, in world trade and an erosion of of the uh, of the uh, uh, global uh, markets. Um, so, uh, unequal exchange has actually declined. Uh, it's reached its peak in 2011. 2011, it reaches uh, uh, 
three trillion dollars, uh, which is uh, three thousand billion dollars, and now it's down to two thousand uh, billion dollars. So, so it's a it's a thirty percent uh, decrease actually in unequal exchange. And what I'm referring to is one year. It's one year. Uh, um, Unequal exchange these uh, these figures and these figures is calculated by different methods and by different persons. So there is some kind of validity in, in these uh, figures. Uh, I think. So thank you so much for that great answer. And we want to pivot a little bit to discuss from unequal exchange contextualizing the as you were just discussing a little bit how it's changing now today. To consider that unequal exchange was a theory that came about at a specific time when there was such a heavy level of, of impoverishment of the third world and of the global south. And just to say, I, I suppose, I mean, we've been talking about the politics of unequal exchange, how to interpret it in solidarity politics. But you've you've written and said, and we discussed about, about third world nationalism, that there can be some kind of nostalgia for the time period of the 60s what was politically salient in the 60s. What do you mean by that? Can you elaborate on that? And, and what does it mean to say, as you just said, that unequal exchange is changing as the development occurs in, in China and in the global South? And so we can't always just look back to the 60s for our politics today. Uh, yes, I, I think that um, the reason why there is uh, this nostalgic uh, or longing to go back to the to the uh, late sixties and the beginning of of the seventies was is because that there was a very a very um, uh, there was a very concrete hope for a transfer towards socialism in the global south uh, at at the time there there was a a, a very logical and a very and, and and a positive uh, game plan, which was that this uh, huge decolonization uh, process and the liberation movements could, could carry on uh, taking state power and could carry on the national liberation into uh, economic uh, liberation, uh, constructing uh, states which moved towards uh, socialism, uh, nationalizing their productive forces, uh, Delinking from uh, from uh, capitalism or uh, from imperialism, trying to create uh, uh, a better uh, payment for their raw materials in in terms of creating different kinds of associations like the OPEC, uh, uh, claiming a new uh, international world order through the United Nations and and so on, and also cooperating with with the socialist bloc, um, the Soviet Union, and the China, and through that, and, and in that way, move towards socialism. But this game plan, it, it suddenly changed, and and uh, when we have the counter offensive with neoliberal uh, globalization, so in many terms, I I, I think that we uh, this was a, a a shallow game plan moving on, maybe only on the political level and not on the deeper economic uh, structures in the world uh, uh, economy. Uh, and, and, 
and this political optimism, I think, was 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 based on a very certain constellation of, of, of global contradictions uh, at the time. Uh, there was the contradictions between the old colonial powers and the United States going from traditional colonialism to neo-colonialism. There was the contradictions between uh, the, the Soviet bloc and, uh, the, and the U.S. also making space for the liberation movements. And then there was this contradiction between the the U.S. Uh, constructing new colonialism and this whole uh, uh, decolonization of a process in the third world. So these three uh, contradictions uh, made space for for the hope for this movement to, to towards uh, socialism, and this was the reason for for the, for the uh, optimism. And this all changed, I think, with with the with neoliberal uh, globalization. And if you see at it, 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 it was when, when we, for instance, uh, visited uh, the African liberation movement or, or the liberation movement in, in the Middle East, it was uh, strange to see that these organizations with only a few thousand uh, guerrillas, only uh, armored with handguns and maybe rocket uh, propelled uh, grenades, but, but basically with very little uh, material strength was able to to threaten uh, to threaten uh, imperialism uh, at at the time, and I think this was very a peculiar situation created not by their military strengths or or, or their political genius strategy, but by this uh, constellation of of uh, of uh, contradictions in the in the world system, and what is Interesting now, I think we are approaching uh, a change in in these international uh, contradictions uh, at at the moment, which could again make space for for national or for economic liberation now, and and for also a transition for 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 uh, countries in the global south towards socialism uh, at the moment because. Now they have a much more de de developed uh, productive forces than they had back in, in the 60s. So the conditions are, are much better. And this is again another aspect which has changed. It's not only the, the size of the unequal exchange which have, sized, uh, which have changed. It's also another aspect which, uh, which uh, Emmanuel deals with. Uh, the, the possibilities of development and, and the relation between unequal exchange and the, and the, the, the prospect for development and the transfer of the technology and, and so on. And this has also changed uh, dramatically in the past uh, 20 years. So interesting. I was, I was wondering, um, carrying on from that, from that discussion, um, in lots of your work, you talk about third world nationalism, um, and you say that in the seventies and the sixties, in retrospect, you think you underestimated the the strength of of nationalism in the third world as compared to socialism. Um, and I was wondering why, like, why do you think retrospectively you um, underestimated the strength of nationalism? And I was wondering how that. Uh, 
and how you see them. Well, first of all, we can just talk about that retrospectively. Why do you think you underestimated the role of nationalism in the third world? I think it was because uh, communism and socialism was was uh, uh, in the lead and organizing uh, the national liberation uh, uh, process. Uh, in, in many of this uh, liberation movement in, in, uh, in uh, Vietnam, in Latin America, and also in the Portuguese uh, colonies, and also in South Africa, and uh, also in the, in, in the Middle East, uh, socialist orientated and, and communists were in the lead of, the, of the, this uh, process. And I think, and I think uh, what they were leading was uh, national liberation. It was not. Uh, it was not uh, the movement towards socialism at the time, and this was our mistake. And the reason why they have this capacity to lead this process have different historical uh, reasons. It was of uh, the the success of 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 the of the establishment of the Soviet Union in 1970, and it was the impact of of the of, of, of the Bolshevik. You can see how how for, for instance Ho Chi Minh uh, when he came to France and to Paris um, uh, in the beginning of uh, around I think he was there around 2000 uh, 1915-16. He came there as a as a nationalist, but was convinced by the communists and by Lenin to be uh, uh, to be uh, uh, a communist. And there was also many Chinese uh, communists living in, in France at at that time. So the so so the the Bolsheviks and the and, and the Russian Revolution played a huge role in in turning. Uh, these figures into leaders of national liberation, and later on, also of course, the third international, the Comintern, played a huge role in organizing uh, national liberation in the in the global south in the twenties, uh, especially in uh, China. I, I think the international played a huge role in in putting the uh, in the early, uh, in in the twenties. To the lead of the liberation of, of uh, China, and yeah, and, and 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 so on. So, so it was uh, this uh, historical uh, organizations. I I think put them in, into the lead. But 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 if you see what the sentiments of of the, the mass base and the people were, I think it was mainly national liberation and not. Uh, I want, yeah, I just had a, uh, just to clarify what you were saying there about how the, the, uh, the interest of the sort of, say, the masses in the third world at that point was more for national liberation rather than uh, for socialism. And would you say that's because at that point the productive forces were at a much lower level of development in the third world and the size of the working class was smaller than it is today? And that as a result, because of the growth of the working class, there's more potential for socialism. Is that how you'd explain um, that? This could be some of yeah. I I I think the, the the development of the productive forces have something to do with with the 
with uh, is it possible to to make that uh, that uh, transition? But I think that the, that that uh, that the level of of proletarization uh, is uh, is a huge uh, have an impact on on that, especially and and especially if if we take. Uh, the situation in in, uh, in Palestine and and uh, the Middle East, the, the working class was very small. It was a non-proletariat mostly. I would say it was the biggest class. And then there was the small peasant class, and then there was petty traders and petty bourgeoisie, and then there was a very small bourgeoisie that was not the working class was not uh, very. Uh, Developed and the same if you go to Angola and Mozambique and, and so on, it's different. If you go to South Africa, there was a, a, a substantial working class in, in uh, South Africa, but in many countries, it was it was other classes who uh, was in in this. But but uh, but I think that that uh, that the driving force was uh, was the national liberation and 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 uh, anti uh, anti racism and uh, and uh, cultural aspect uh, more and it, of course there was also this basic uh, struggle against poverty and uh, things like uh, that in which socialism could uh, could. Uh, Play a big role, but I don't think it was uh, a solid, uh, consolidated. Uh, uh, I, and I can, you can see it in the Middle East, where where you have this totally decline of of, uh, of of socialism in the Arab world, which is nearly non-existent uh, at the moment. It completely disappeared with the collapse of the Soviet Union. was not not. Very yeah, and, and that leads into our next question, which is to say, your estimation nowadays of the progressiveness of third world bourgeois nationalist forces, for example, thinking of Hamas, which is uh, fighting for a capitalist Palestine, not necessarily for, for a socialist one, or even to think of on a broader scale, bourgeois nationalism in the case of Russia, for example, uh, where the ruling class is not claiming to be socialist, but uses sort of anti-Western narratives around Russian uh, national economic interests to present these attacks on the West and and argue for multipolarity at the least. And I wonder, with your recent works on multipolarity, what you would say around the progressiveness of these of these forces? I think that uh, that. Uh... If you go back to to uh, neoliberalism, which has been a, a principal contradiction in the world system for many many years, um, and uh, neoliberalism, uh, the process of neoliberalism, there or the contradiction in neoliberalism has been between, uh, on one side, uh, the wish of transnational capital. To uh, to create uh, uh, a world accumulation of uh, of uh, capital and minimize the state's interference in, in capital transfer and uh, world state, um, 
And on the other side, uh, we have the national state backed by different classes, uh, which will try to regulate and try to control international capitalism from different uh, political uh, perspectives. And and uh, you can say from with with Keynesianism and uh, and uh, the big uh, capitalist global crisis in the in, in the late twenties and the beginning of the thirties and after the Second World War, the state uh, this kind of of state control grew stronger and stronger uh, up through the fifties and and the sixties and at the same time, transnational capital also grew stronger and stronger and they came to uh, kind to a head ahead uh, confrontation. In, in the middle of the 70s, where transnational capital certainly became the dominant aspect in, in, in this uh, contradiction and, um, and, and uh, managed to get more liberal uh, rules on the transfer of capital and, and uh, trade and, and so on. And we, I imagine, and many other imagine that this. Uh, upper hand of transnational um, capital would continue. Fujiyama, he had he he uh, he wrote this um, about the end of history. And on the left side, um, Hart and Negri they wrote the Empire, which actually a, a left wing uh, edition of of uh, Fujiyama, because they also imagined that neoliberalism would would um, would uh, Proceed, and we would have one empire with a mixture of of transnational capital creating uh, transnational institutions, and we maybe have a transnational military and police force, and so on, to rule this uh, empire. But I think that many of us missed this uh, dialectic in neoliberalism that uh, neoliberalism had an impact on on uh, people. And suddenly they wanted a, a stronger state and, and they wanted to regulate uh, capitalism, especially after the financial uh, crisis. We had this backlash of, of uh, nationalism. Certainly we have it in, in, uh, in uh, Russia in the form of neo, uh, neoconservative uh, nationalism and uh, capitalism. I think there's that, that Putin and Trump is, is much on the same uh, level. They are both very conservative uh, nationalist uh, 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 people, but representing, of course, different uh, 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 nations. But we also had other kinds. We, we also have in uh, India, we, we have the Modi, and we have in Brazil first, we had uh, this uh, conservative, neoliberal nationalism, and, and now, or uh, conservative with uh, and now we have this kind of, of uh, left-wing nationalism with Google. Uh, and of course, China developed its own, it went also back. It's, it's, it's said that around 2005, 2008, they decided that neoliberalism was burned out and we have to go back to a more nationalist uh, project uh, creating uh, socialism, Chinese characteristics. So we have this 
different kind of, of nationalism in, in uh, the world system, but they are somehow united in, in, in wanting uh, a decline in the U.S. Uh, hegemony. Uh, so I think we are approaching this with someone called the West against the rest at the moment. And this is reflected also in the positions towards the Ukrainian war and uh, a lot of other aspects. I think we see this uh, the West against the rest. But the rest is, is of course, divided in many types of regimes. Uh, uh, the Iranian regime, the Chinese regime, the the Russian regime and so on. So there are, the components are very different, but they have some kind of unity that they want a, a multipolar world system. And this is a huge uh, change, which I think will give breathing space for new political movements and uh, many interesting things. And it's also, I, I, I saw, uh, I read today, a very interesting uh, article on monthly review online about the level of, of the technology. Now, now, uh, if you rate, if, if you read the papers, academic papers on, on high tech uh, industrial development, now, uh, now uh, China is, is the country which is producing most uh, new academic papers on different kinds of uh, technology. And what is the new thing is that these papers are written by persons who have not studied in the West. They are they have not studied in, in, in America or or Europe and going back. Most of the papers are, are produced by Chinese academics which have come out of China and have only been in, in uh, China. So they have now gone from copy-paste uh, left-wing uh, or Western te technology to be able to to um, develop uh, that technology inside uh, China. Now, latest seen by, there wasn't this example of, of supersonic jet engines where China is way ahead of, of uh, the West. Uh, and this is represented in the ability to produce, for instance, the uh, supersonic uh, missiles, uh, which the West cannot do. So this is, but also in robot technology, artificial uh, intelligence, or electric cars, and a lot of other uh, new technologies. Uh, so I don't think that the 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 trick which the West is trying to do is it's trying to now to make a, a ban on selling chips to uh, China and uh, this kind of, of the things and which it shows their their inability to compete in in, in science or in free trade. They had to go back to to uh, use methods like uh, which is not very useful. Uh, this kind of, of uh, bands which they have uh, used. And, and another example of, of the, the inefficiency of, of the bands is all the bands that have been on Iran and they have been able to produce, for instance, uh, advanced, advanced military drones and other kinds of, of, of technology. And then also they can, they can 
developed nuclear uh, technology. So all these uh, bands with the West are trying to to uh, implement on Russia or China or other countries. They I don't think they would be uh, efficient. They would. Uh, India is also developing very strong in, in uh, technology-wise at the moment. So uh, a lot of things is, is happening not only in unequal exchange, but also in developing other toxic factors in the global south, which will change the world balance in the coming years. Interesting. I mean, about about China, the, the next thing we wanted to discuss was uh, just, in fact, about that. Um, in your work in the 70s, you often talk about how um, socialism in the third world is the sort of, um, the, sort of the, the natural, I guess, choice because only socialism is able to solve the economic problems of uh, underdevelopment and uh, imperialist exploitation uh, that the third world suffers from. And I was wondering whether the uh, the economic rise of China uh, from the 1970s, 80s onwards um, made you revise that sort of conception because China's China's rise and also the, the rise in Chinese um, you know working class wages has been largely due to a sort of you know, capitalist export oriented economic development with state control as well, but uh, it still doesn't. I don't think it looks. Uh, probably like the sort of socialism that you used to talk about. I, I wonder if your conception, basically, of the economic necessity of socialism in the third world has changed because of China. Uh, I think I, I I think what what uh, what our 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 concept our conception our concept at the time back in in the seventies was that that um, that it was possible to to build uh, socialism. Uh, in one country or in several countries uh, at the time, I don't think we have a very clear perspective of what we meant by uh, by socialism. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe uh, nationalization of the forces of production, more more fair distribution of the, of the income, more equality. Uh, the race of, of also uh, also I think uh, distribution of land to the to the peasant uh, to raise the the productive of the agriculture and, uh, and so on. Uh, but I don't think we we had a very clear definition of, of what, what what socialism will mean uh, in these countries in 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 a 10-year perspective or, or, or something like that. Um, but I think I have changed my view on what socialism is and the prospect for, for socialism. I think we have to see the transfer from capitalism to socialism in a very long perspective, like we have seen the transfer from pre-capitalism to, to capitalism also in in terms of uh, several uh, centuries. And actually, this has always been the perspective, strangely enough, by the, by the Chinese. Uh, and there, I think there is a, more of, of a continuity in the Chinese thinking and the Chinese 
strategy, different kinds of, of strategy, then there is a discontinuity, which is normally, you, you know, normally you said we have had some kind of, of uh, movement towards socialism from 49 to the death of Mao Zedong, and then we have uh, uh, kind of going back to capitalism from Deng Xiaoping, uh, up to uh, now, and now we don't know what uh, she is about. Maybe it's social democracy, or I don't know. Maybe it's a kind of, of capitalism or mixed market, or I don't know what. But we have we have this this continuity. But but I I think that there is a, if you go back to the male period, he all, he also uh, he had very very. Different strategies throughout the, the 30 years he was in, in uh, power. He used uh, a very socialist modes of uh, production. He, he used often capitalism to develop the productive forces. He used political campaigns, uh, uh, changing the, uh, the superstructure, and he, he, he used very different uh, different. Um, methods, but always uh, focused on uh, developing the, the productive forces and and uh, and the Chinese national product. Chinese should be sufficient to produce its own food. It should be sufficient to produce its own uh, uh, industrial uh, uh, product and, and and so on. But always this uh, focus on. On developing the, the productive forces and uh, to having a, a national uh, profit, and I think this there is a continuity in in this project in the Chinese uh, Communist Party more than it, and this uh, turning into uh, different uh, separate uh, categories. And for the moment, I think that they. Are moving towards a more socialist uh, strategy because they can see the decline of, of, of capitalism uh, actually. Uh, so, uh, but, I, but as I say, it would take several uh, several um, uh, decades before they reach that uh, that uh, stage. But I think they. They, at the moment, they have a kind of social democracy policy where they are distributing wealth more equitably. They have made a lot of changes in, in, the, in the last uh, decades in, in controlling uh, capital, in controlling the financial system, in, in developing the, the countryside, and recently also in, in taking again control over the, the housing market and. Uh, and the market of, of uh, private property for uh, yeah for housing and uh, and land. So I I think uh, they are trying to control capitalism uh, much more tightly than they have done uh, in the past. And first of all, they are trying to to create a more peaceful world for 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 this, for this uh, as they say this. Uh, Transformation from 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 the decline of capitalism to uh, to socialism because they think 
uh, that this transfer could be very, very uh, dangerous because the decline of capitalism would create so much uh, chaos and brutality in the world system, uh, both in terms of of wars and in terms of climate uh, catastrophe. So I think China is very focused on on uh, peace actually and trying to keep uh, more and more uh, peaceful uh, at at the moment. And we see the worst. The West is is, uh, is going for compensation. I think so. This is also um, a difference, I, I think, between the West and and the West. And the West is uh, and the West is very ag ag aggressive because they can see in all in all. Um, yeah, we're entering a. Dramatic and dangerous period because uh, the West are, are losing both in economical terms. Uh, what I mean is the unequal exchange, the transfer of, of value from from the global south to the north is, is uh, going down, and uh, they and they their economic system is very unstable. We are now seeing this banking crisis uh, at at the moment. On, on, on top of this, there is this uh, debt problem, this accumulation of, of the debt in the capitalist system where we are now over. The, the, the debt is, the, the total amount of, of debt is more than two times the world uh, global uh, uh, product. And we have also this, um, this, uh, Phenomenon of world money, where the U.S. had a, had a huge uh, um, control of the world economy and gaining a lot of the value because they had the dollar as a currency, and this is also on the on the change that we see other currencies are are being used in uh, global trade in coming up in oil, but also trade between the global south is is. is is now taking place in our other currency, the dollar. So we have the, the diminishing unequal exchange. We have the, the attack on the dollar. We have the, the debt uh, problems. We have the, the uncertainty in the financial sector. So there's a lot of crisis. And now they are using a lot of, of money uh, on on weapons instead of using it on on uh, the screen transfer uh, uh, process and the uh, very bad international climate is also uh, is also being uh, a hindering for uh, going into uh, uh, the agreement on what to do with the climate change so I think Capitalism are approaching many, many crises uh, at the time, and therefore the rest of the world is looking for other solutions uh, uh, at the moment. Uh, so this is a dangerous, uh, it's a dangerous uh, situation because the, the West is losing and they are trying to gain their foothold by, by military means uh, at the moment there. I think their their game plan is to have a regime change in Russia and uh, China and to relaunch a third wave of colonization of the. Uh, they want to have a Yeltsin 
en, uh, en uh, Moscow, Anna, Anna Jensen, en, uh, en, uh, en Peking, and then try to reboot uh, uh, neoliberalism and having control of the global south. This is, uh, I think, their uh, strategy. And they are using Taiwan or the Muslim question in uh, China. They tried it in Hong Kong, but they are trying to find some kind of, of issues where they can destabilize the Chinese uh, regime. And, yeah, so this is their thing, and it's a dangerous thing. On that note, uh, we're we're curious to ask around the the issue of the development of China, whether you believe that this is a replicable develop development by uh, other uh, countries in the third world, or if it relies too much on the Western Pacific consumer export market, and whether you see a prospect where the level of development achieved by China could be achieved also by a country in Africa or in Latin America, for example? I think uh, uh, if we go back to, to the 60s, uh, I think China, at that time, China wanted to export uh, Maoism and Chinese uh, communism to the whole world. They, they wanted to take over the role which, which, which Moscow had had in the 20s and the 30s and so on to be the the representative of the of global socialism, but but uh, this is not the strategy of of the of China anymore. I think they they uh, found out that uh, that uh, different kinds of socialism have to be embedded in the cultural and national process of of uh, different uh, countries. So I think that that. As they basically, uh, the Chinese Communist Party and now they constructed the, the Chinese uh, tradition of, of Marxism and, and socialism in the 30s in Wuhan. Uh, and now they have been trying to develop this kind of socialism with Chinese characteristics. And I think they now think that they should make uh, Chinese uh, socialism with. Uh, Brazilian characteristic or socialism with South African characteristic and socialism with, with Arab uh, characteristic. Um, but but I think that uh, that China can can play a role in, in creating this uh, development because very different from from the First World War. Now now uh, now these countries will have. Um, Better access to uh, technology and better access to development of, of their of their productive forces. Uh, For instance, I don't think that that the American uh, ban and blockade of of Cuba is, is so important anymore because now they can buy what they want from from the from the Chinese. The same thing with Venezuela or countries which are banned by by the Western world, they can now get what they need in terms of industrial uh, goods and and, uh, and technology uh, transfer from other countries. And you will see that that Cuba and China and and uh, China and Venezuela 
is developing very, very close uh, uh, contacts in recent years. And I think that that many African countries are also looking for for Chinese uh, assistance in developing their infrastructure and uh, and, 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 and forces. And is this establishment of of this uh, multipolar work? You can also see the formation of alternative uh, institutions for banking and for financing and. Uh, and so on. We have this, the Shanghai Bank and the BRICS Bank, and we have, we have alternatives to the World Bank and IMF. But I think we will have a, a division, a division of forms of, of, of the socialism. We will not have this uniform form which we had with the Moscow Communism. Uh, from the Bolshevik Revolution to uh, the 60s and the 70s. And it's the Chinese try to uh, uh, take over uh, in, the, in the 70s and late 60s. Because there, there was a competition at that time which should be the head of the communist movement. I, I don't see we would have this, uh, this kind of, of struggles anymore. We definitely want to talk a little bit about the Sino-Soviet split soon. Um, but before we get to that, I just had one more question about China today. Um, like today, it's fairly often, fairly common, I'd say, among lots of, uh, let's say, left-wing uh, writers and, and so on, it's especially, I'd say, probably in the West, uh, to talk about Chinese imperialism in the third world. Um, I was wondering if you could sort of elaborate a little bit. In your view, what are the main differences uh, between Chinese economic involvement with the third world as compared to the West? Um, how, what are the qualitative differences? Because they both invest, they, do, they, they both make some investments in the third world. What would you say are the qualitative differences? Um, first of all, um... China has, I think, uh, developed its productive forces into the stage which is at its end now by mainly its, its own force and by exploiting its own working class. China, the rise of China has not come in terms of, of exploiting other countries. The rise of China is based on, on China's own population. And their and their um, and their clever uh, and their clever interaction with neoliberalism from from uh, in the past uh, in the past uh, thirty years uh, taking in the technology but but keeping the the state power. So I don't think China has developed to what they are in now by uh, imperialism. I would, a lot of people would say, or some people would say that, that this is true up to Deng, and then somehow China became capitalist in, in uh, the 1970s and, uh, or, or, or the early uh, uh, new uh, century. But, uh, but uh, I don't think so, but because for now, China is still ex exploited by, by the West since 
exchange has gone down, but but there is still unequals exchange between China and the US and Europe. If we say went uh, China during its its uh, race, uh, it has also made investments uh, in other countries, especially I think in, in Africa, and they have this road and initiative where they also invest in uh, infrastructure and so on. But China, I don't think China had, uh, they also lacked the military and, and political means and pressures which the West had. So it's very different from from the West in, in, uh, in that sense. It's not China which had uh, 700 bases around the world with uh, military. And, uh, China doing, I think China do business uh, with uh, in different circular countries, but what if you if you uh, take the amount of, of profit which is uh, taking home or the unequal exchange, if, if there is some between uh, actually Cola have mentioned it, uh, I tried to uh, mention the size of, of unequal exchange between Africa and uh, and uh, China, and it's it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a very low figure. Uh, compared to other figures, and it doesn't have an impact that support the, the Chinese uh, economic uh, system. So it, it is not, uh, it doesn't have the size, uh, I think. And most, I think, are, of the investments is, is done in infrastructure, in, um, in harbors and railroads and, and so on. And I think this is a, uh, this is benefiting many, uh, many third world countries, even if it gets uh, profits to, uh, to uh, uh, China. It's more and more, it's a better investment than, than, uh, than setting up a, a, a factory for producing uh, clothes for the Western European market or shoes for the Western European market or Taking out the uh, raw materials, I think the investments in in, uh, in infrastructure is, is is benefiting. So I I think I do not think China is is uh, imperialist, and if it's is, it's a very low figure. Uh, Our next question is shifting a little bit to the Sino-Soviet split and back into history, in particular. In retrospect, how do you think your group, which definitely was impacted by the Sino-Soviet split and your analysis in general of the Sino-Soviet split, how would you explain the cause of, of what occurred? And more specifically, why why did the Soviet side support mass-based anti-imperialist forces, for example, the MPLA in Angola, versus the Chinese support for UNITA on the same side as uh, the CIA and the apartheid, for example? I think that... Uh, that uh... The Chinese, they developed, or Mao Zedong actually, I think he was the main force behind it. He developed this uh, third three words theory, I think, in, in, in uh, I don't know, when it was, was it in 74 or something like, uh, like uh, uh, that? Uh, and I think it was, uh, it was, a very strange uh, theory, and I think it's, it, it, it came out with uh, compensation 
with uh, with the Soviet Union uh, in in the in, in the sixties and and the seventies, where they suddenly saw the Soviet Union as the most dangerous uh, influence uh, power in the world, and even even uh, the third world had to uh, unite with uh, at least at least Western Europe. I don't know about the U.S., but, but the third world had to unite with uh, Europe against uh, against this most dangerous influence um, force. Uh, and in terms of this uh, strategy, the top priority was to uh, was to go against the, the Soviet Union, and this was the this was the most dangerous and aggressive part. So therefore, they uh, they united with the USA. Uh, against uh, against uh, uh, the NPLA and against the Cubans uh, in uh, Angola and in many other countries, uh, I think. and I and and I can see that uh, the the Chinese now are, are looking back at it, and I I'm, I remember I have seen she also saying that this uh, this uh, strategy was. Uh, Wrong, and this uh, analysis of the world at the time was uh, not valid in those things. And I think it was produced uh, as a consequence of, 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 of Chinese uh, nationalism uh, at the time, uh, and dispute uh, with uh, Russia at the time. Because now in the 70s, Russia was not the most dangerous uh, imperialist power. They were, they were already losing to uh, America in the decline. So, uh, yeah. I think it was... Uh, and if they skipped it already, yeah, I think this theory with the mouth it and uh, and then took over it, it was not part of the foreign policy uh, anymore and I think I, I have seen uh, criticism of it uh, from chief uh, that's really interesting I mean uh, I'm glad that you said this you gave an explanation of why you think the Chinese took this position because that's actually the, the the next question that we had uh, and and in my because um, there was there's been a recent book by these uh, Chinese scholars one of one of them his name is like uh, Zia I'm not sure pronounce pronounce the name correctly but uh, about the Sino-Soviet split and they uh, they specifically talk a lot about the Chinese nationalist frustrations especially with uh, the Soviet Union not wanting to engage in military conflict with. Uh, the U.S. over Taiwan, and also um, the Soviet Union not supporting China in the military conflict with India. And it seemed like, in a certain sense, kind of petty nationalist disputes. Uh, at least that was that's kind of my impression reading this. It didn't it didn't seem worthwhile to, to split the anti-imperialist socialist bloc. Um, so, yeah. I, th I think that 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 uh, China was uh, you know uh, very afraid of feeling completely isolated in, in confrontation both with with with, uh, with the Soviet Union and 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 uh, 
uh, Russia over the uh, and with the U.S. at the same time, they were very uh, very afraid of of, of this double uh, attack or, or or something. And and in that then in that process, they they were more and so they were more afraid actually of the Soviet Union than uh, than the U.S. Yeah. And and they were they they were the main one of the main reasons for the for the for the split in the, in sixty two was that they were Chinese were unsatisfied with the, the Soviet Union policy of peaceful coexistence. They they were very much uh, against this uh, this policy, and therefore they launched this this spirit revolutionary spirit uh, was a very in their foreign policy uh, against this peaceful uh, coexistence with influence. This was one of the main differences. And this was a reason why the Chinese was very popular in the third world actually. It was because of, of, of this uh, policy of the region and spirit instead of peaceful coexistence with uh, influence. Uh, the Chinese never contributed very much in terms of material assistance to uh, liberation when you compare it with, uh, the, with the Soviet Union. But they were very important in the export of the revolutionary hope and, and the revolutionary spirit when they were, I think, more important than the Soviet Union. And you see this typical in the in the combination in the Vietnam, where you have the, the Soviet Union delivering the, the political support and, and the material support, and the, and the Chinese were delivering the the, the revolutionary spirit and the tactic and the military tactic and and the, the whole idea of of the long-term people's war and surrounding the cities from the countryside and all this uh, this was taken out of uh, Maoism this whole uh, concept of, of, of strategy but it was uh, something who delivered the, the, the guns and the cannons On that note, we're we're curious to ask a little bit about specifically the KKK and MKA's position within the Sino-Soviet split. So, as you were just mentioning, not only China becoming more popular amongst uh, the Third World left, but also becoming more popular amongst the European anti-imperialist left that is splitting away um, from Moscow. And you were, uh, I guess, the origins of of the KKK were in this split from the Danish Communist Party that was allied with Moscow. At, at the same time, I wonder why the, the reasons that your group then wanted to split away from China when, for example, you had this letter sent to the Chinese embassy that said that, you know, the support for May 68 is on the basis, it's overestimating the revolutionary potential in Europe, and it's not understanding the labor aristocracy. Do you believe that that was a moment where you split away from China because they were misunderstanding the revolutionary situation in the world. Um, 
if I just explain, uh, yes, it's correct that that that, uh, that this uh, communist working circle was split out of of the Danish Communist Party uh, in, in December '63, and the first idea or strategy was that 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 since the the Chinese Communist Party was was uh, the real Communist Party, they were anti-revisionist and they were strongly anti-imperialist, especially uh, going against peaceful uh, coexistence. Then we must be able to convince the members of the Danish Communist Party about the Chinese position is better than the Moscow positions because since the party members uh, declare themselves as as uh, communists, they must uh, they must uh, accept the the Chinese uh, position, and this doesn't turn out because only I think uh, four five hundred members of the Communist Party joined this new uh, communist working circle in in, uh, in the spring of of the sixty four. The majority of the Communist Party. The next step was uh, okay. Then we must convince the, the workers about um, uh, that that the Chinese uh, policy is better than than Moscow's uh, uh, policy. And then for uh, two three years, they try to to propagate the 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 revisionist and the uh, position of of China in the big. Factories and shipyards and breweries and all kinds of things uh, in, uh, in uh, Copenhagen, but this didn't um, work very well. They were not very well uh, accepted, but they were very well accepted in in the growing uh, anti-war movement against the Vietnam War and among newspeople and uh, students. So the idea was to use this uh, anti-Vietnam war and, uh, and, and, and pro-liberation movement in the use to be like kind of, of train for the Chinese position within the working class. This was the next uh, tactic of how to introduce the, the Chinese position of being anti-revolutionist and anti-imperialist. This was the two main uh, uh, ingredients Yes, in, in this uh, uh, policy. But the working class never turned very much off to this anti-Indians and uh, Vietnam uh, demonstrations and, solid, and solidarity work. So they started to wonder could there be uh, other explanations and when they started this uh, theory by naming about the workers autocracy and the division in the working class due to imperialism around the First World War and so on and so forth, and then started to developing the theory of the of the parasite state. And then they got a little um, a little uh, how what's this rope we are moving into? We are saying that the working class is not the revolutionary anymore. And actually, in '66. Before writing these letters and disputes with the Chinese embassy and the Chinese Communist Party, and Dr. Apple and two others actually went to China in, in 63 on an invitation 
from the Chinese Communist Party Department of, of the relations with foreign communist parties or, or, or something. So they met with two or three members from the Central Committee, which were dealing with this kind of, of, the, of the foreign communist parties. And they had discussions with them for two, three days. I can see when they came home from these discussions, they were not sure how much the Chinese actually understood of their position because they were done by, by Chinese, uh, Danish or English uh, translators or, 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 or something. But they had the impression that the Chinese said, it's interesting what you are, your findings are interesting and uh, uh, go ahead with your with your studies and your your uh, policy. So they had this kind of they that this line was uh, was accepted by the Chinese, and then they uh, they started to write letters to Kiki uh, Review uh, when they read something in Kiki Review about this, uh, the, uh, for instance about the uh, demonstrations and strikes in England and what was the background for this and also the, the Paris uprising in students movement and they wrote different times and then they got uh, a very different information uh, from, from the Chinese and then they started this dispute and writing to and then the, 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 there was this uh, break between the, the Chinese and, uh, and, and communist uh, working side, I was thinking in, in, uh, in uh, 60, uh, 68, I think, or 67, 68. So this is, this was the, the reason for the, for the, for the break. Peter, do you want to ask the last question? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think we've been talking uh, today about the different sort of the history, I guess, of the uh, anti-imperialist uh, political history. Um, but I just want to come back to the present, and I was just wondering what you think, Torko, about uh, sort of what what sort of vectors of transnational uh, political organization cooperation are important today. And that you could you see you could have like a productive uh, would be productive. I mean, like I guess not to be immodest, but I guess one thing like, you know had uh, having these conversations and uh, making that public. That's that's one sort of thing. Are there any other sort of things that you think would be useful at this at this time? Could you just clarify and repeat what what kind of organization or what kind of work? Uh, what that what what do you mean? Well, I mean, like often, uh, I think often in, when you read um, left-wing Marxist analysis, they often talk about transnational labor organization. It's not always so clear what that means in practice. And I think personally, often it comes off as a little bit idealistic, maybe abstract, uh, especially when they start talking about sort of like Western working class, then world working class cooperation. It seems very uh, unclear where they where they see that coming from. But I was wondering what you think, what kind of, uh, if or if that is even really a thing that should be focused on, and maybe maybe there's too much emphasis placed on that, and be better maybe to focus more on sort of uh, 
domestic perspective. Well, what do you think would be sort of important uh, factors for political cooperation organization at the moment? Does, does that clarify your question, Toko? I, 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 I'm asking, is it possible to, to build a progressive uh, transnational workers' organizations? Is that what you mean? It's, uh, transnational trade unions, which are, which are, solid, which are uh, solidarity uh, with each other? Is that uh, what you mean? Yeah, I mean, like, th- th- that's one example. Uh, it's just, it's a very common sort of uh, phrase that you, that's used, especially uh, in the sort of when writers about about imperialism and about uh, you know, left-wing perspectives on the global economy and so on. And I was wondering if you think, is, is it a relevant thing to talk about or is it really just too abstract uh, and maybe used too often? Or do you think there is potential and maybe like you said about with transnational um, tr- trade union organization cooperation? Concerning trade unions, uh, I think it's I, um, I think it's uh, there is some trade unions uh, which have the possibility and, and have uh, uh, done uh, international work and and uh, solidarity, and it is especially in the logistic example. Uh, the best example is uh, is. Uh, the workers in uh, harbors and stevedore, all kinds of, of loading and unloading uh, ships and uh, harbors. Uh, this uh, this part of the working class, there is a long history of of actually of uh, of solidarity and also for uh, anti-imperialist uh, uh, policy. Uh, it was. Uh, it was, uh, uh, you can see it, uh, for instance, during the struggle against apartheid, they would not know or unload the South African uh, goods. We have even seen it in, in relation to uh, Israel. There have also been strikes. And, and also there have been solidarity with, with each other's uh, struggle, uh, even if they have very different uh, um, uh, which I, I think Harbor, Harbor, Harbor is, is one example of, of uh, a very clear example of the uh, exchange. Even that, if you see different harbors in, in uh, China or in Hamburg or in Rotterdam or in, or in the US or in, in uh, Latin America, you will see the same equipment and the same uh, the same uh, um, kind of work uh, being done with unloading and uh, and loading uh, uh, cargo. It's the same productivity, but the wages are very different. But even there, there have been uh, a solidarity when there have been strikes in, in one harbor. Other, other harbors have been striking in uh, solidarity across the globe in some instances. Uh, so I think this is this is uh, the the transport uh, sector is is one where you can see uh, a, a kind of of, uh, of solidarity. But else, there is very very few uh, examples of uh, of working class uh, solidarity. Actually. But I think the the main 
main work we can do here in in the global north at the moment is uh, I think the very hard task of the fighting against the militarization and the escalation of the, of the war because it's coming more and more uh, dangerous. And maybe I, I, I don't think that, uh, that uh, people will go against this kind of, of war because of anti-imperialist uh, arguments. They certainly don't like uh, China and uh, Russia and uh, the other things. So they they really in in that case there's a huge backing in, in, at least in uh, Europe behind me. So very strong. Uh, I, there there is also of course uh, anti NATO demonstrations, but they are very small. But the huge uh, political. But but but. Um, People are beginning to see this militarization as a threat to to welfare, actually, because they do so much money and so uh, much uh, energy on it. So, so the welfare system are beginning to erode. So the critic against this uh, war comes from losing uh, losing uh, welfare, I, I think. And there there is a kind of perspective that people want. Uh, won't uh, uh, lose welfare or militarization. So the is beginning to be a, a process uh, about uh, uh, buying more weapons. There, there, there here in Denmark, for, for instance, we have we brought a lot of advanced uh, uh, military equipment from uh, from France, which is now transferred to Ukraine. And to uh, and to um, and to replace all this military equipment, we cannot get it from France because uh, they cannot produce so much at the time. So Denmark is producing are buying huge amount of weapons at the moment from in Israel uh, and Israeli arms uh, producer, and this is kind of. At least creating some political. Uh, now we are we are we have transferred. Uh, there's a kind of hypocrisy that that uh, people are saying, oh, we need to give arms to the to the Ukrainian uh, freedom fighters, but then we have to to buy weapons from another power who is occupying <laughs> uh, another population in in the in the Palestine. So there there is this. Uh, there is this uh, moral uh, problems in in uh, this arms buying uh, uh, at the moment, Denmark. and people can see beginning to see uh, the the danger in this uh, armaments uh, strategy. So this is one question, and and certainly I think we should. Uh, I I don't see uh, I don't see uh, China as as some kind of Closed black box. I certainly think that that there's a there's a class struggle going going on in uh, in uh, China and and there's also a political struggle inside the Chinese Communist uh, uh, Party. And of course, it is interesting, and we should try to support uh, the, the the left wing in uh, China as we should uh, 
continue to support uh, the struggles uh, for economic uh, liberation in the third world, going from national liberation to, to economic uh, liberation everywhere. This is still an, an, an important priority. And as I said in the beginning, I think this this struggle will have more breathing space uh, with this decline of U.S. Uh, hegemony and the and the race of, of the rise of a of a more multipolar world create a, some kind of breathing space for for political movement which had not existed on the on the on the, the dominance of U.S. hegemony. We can see the possibility of Latin America or African countries to move in another di- direction, uh, I think, because because uh, this uh, contradictions between the West and the rest might, and we see the formation of a non-alliance movement. We see the formation. I I think that they they have started again to put off the agenda of of a, a new economic world order and this kind of of, of stock. So, so in that way, I, I, I see, as we started with, that we are, we are seeing the same, the same interesting uh, constellation of global contradictions which existed, uh, which existed in the 60s uh, are, are now again uh, appearing. And this is creating better conditions for, for socialist uh, movements. But the but the but the joker is that it's that it's dangerous. We have seen we going into a, a war mode, right? and we're seeing that everyone is getting more arms, and the stakes are are getting higher uh, all the time. And this is a uh, this is dangerous. And of and of course also in the background there's this whole the all the issue of the uh, of destruction of environment and destructions of uh, of the, uh, the climate, which is putting lower and lower on the agenda because of of the hostile international conversations. Uh, so it's a dramatic, dangerous, and positive <laughs> situation. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, yeah, and. Well, thank you so much, Torkel. I think um, if it's okay with Peter, I think we can wrap up here. Um, I think we got through a lot of the questions that we had, but we're always very, very interested to talk with you and, and ask these questions from someone who has thought and, and struggled around them so much. So thank you so much. Um, Peter, no, would you want to say anything else? No, see you again. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thanks so much, Torkel. Thank you. Have a great day.